And what the teacher needs to understand is how they went about making the mistake, where they made the mistake, what their misconceptions were, and then give them other ways of perhaps looking at it. And this is the art of great teaching. This is Effective Teaching with Dan Jackson from TeachersPD.net, giving you effective teaching and learning strategies for your classroom. Okay, welcome to the Effective Teaching Podcast, another episode looking at how to create some lifelong learners. Today, I have an extra special guest. He's a laureate professor at the University of Melbourne and the current chair of AITSL. Uh, it is Professor John Hattie, and he is obviously the author of multiple books. Pretty much anything that has visible learning on its cover has him as one of its authors. So, John, thank you so much for giving up some of your time to chat to me today. Pleasure, Dan. Good. So... I would like to start by just asking you what you see is the most effective teaching strategy for creating lifelong learners. Well, Dan, I want to start with the notion of a lifelong learner, then go backwards. Yeah, that sounds great. We have a lot of phrases for a lifelong learner, and obviously we talk about developing kids for that, but I take a, a slightly variant on it and say a lifelong learner is a person who knows how to be their own teacher. And I find it kind of ironic that five-year-olds are pretty good at that, but by age eight, they think the job is for the teacher to do that. But if you think of lifelong learners as their own teacher, it's you want someone who knows what to do when they don't know what to do. You want someone who knows how to ask for help and even better knows where best to go for help. You want someone who has uh, multiple strategies of learning, so if the first one doesn't work, they have others to fall back on. And to me, this is the essence of a lifelong learner, which you can see in a five-year-old. You can, you can see in a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 30-year-old. And so when you start from that premise, it kind of turns everything on its head because so often we think of the student as the thing being done to as opposed to the thing we need to take over our jobs. And so with that is your premise of a lifelong learner, which is mine, then the strategies is that as teachers, we may have to not talk as much. We may have to ask not as many what questions. We may have to not focus only on the surface level knowledge. We may have to give up and teach the kids what to do when they fail, how to go about the processes of learning and give them some multiple ways to have control over that. And so when you think of lifelong learners that way, then I think the strategies are quite different than as we normally think of them. Yeah, that, that's great, John. I, I love the fact that you've talked there about you know, the students becoming their own teachers and the need for teachers to really be stepping out of their way. I think that is really fantastic because I know one of the things that teachers struggle with quite frequently really is that they want to constantly save the kid. You know, Particularly if they're time poor and they're trying to get through something, they, they don't allow the kid the time to wrestle with the, the struggles of learning. So what advice then would you have for a teacher who has a kid who's struggling in front of them with the learning? How do they help themselves to not intervene and allow the student to develop those learning skills? Oh, I don't, I don't want to assume that they shouldn't intervene. Uh, the way I'd want to intervene with that student is to try and get them to talk aloud about how they went about solving the problem and sort of starting firstly with great diagnosis where you get into the student's shoes to try and understand Normally we say, no, that's wrong, try this. But actually, what were the processes the kids are using? And the trouble a lot of kids have, particularly those that struggle on these, whatever topic we're talking about, is they usually only have one strategy. And if that doesn't work, they do it again. And they do it again. 
And what the teacher needs to understand is how they went about making the mistake, where they made the mistake, what their misconceptions were, and then give them other ways of perhaps looking at it. And this is the art of great teaching. So I don't want the teacher to not intervene. I just want them to intervene by starting with the premise of about how the student made the mistake, how the student got it right. What were the processes used? We've got to get away from this message that everything's right or wrong. And it's like compounded by many of the, the tests we give kids. They're right or wrong. And this gets in the way of good learning. It's how they made that mistake and what are the processes they're using and can we teach them so other ways of doing it. Are you saying then, John, that you're not for a whole bunch of standardised testing in schools? No, not at all. Like standardised testing have its place. Testing by teachers has its place. But it shouldn't um, dominate. It shouldn't interfere with the learning. I'm a great fan of it, provided it's triangulated with artefacts of the kids' work and also the student voice about how they're learning. I wouldn't want it not to be there, but I want to put it in its place. It's a small but important part of that equation of triangulation to help. One of the most exciting things in testing in the last 20 years is try using tests to look at how the processes kids use. Now, that's still not common in Australia, for example, but I think that's an exciting development. But no, we've got to be careful about tests are to help teachers understand what they did well, who they did well with, and the magnitude. But too often we make it a burden on kids. So, John, in New South Wales, we have the HSC exams, which I find, you know, I do a lot of work with HSC teachers, particularly around PDHPE. And one thing that drives me nuts with HSC teachers is that so often they focus on that HSC exam and prepping kids for that exam at the expense of good learning. I, I, I worry in Australia about our fetish for using high schools as selection mechanisms into universities. I was involved in my days in New Zealand getting rid of that whole system and saying to the universities, high schools are not prep factories for you. And we abolished the equivalent of HSC and replaced it with a procedure that certified what kids will do. And with micro-credentialing, the big buzzword now, I'm a great fan of certifying what kids can do and giving then teachers some options within that, not only about the coverage, which is, I think, the problem you hear so often when people say it's not on the HSC, but more importantly, the depth. And particularly at that age, kids want to go deep in some areas. But it's very hard when you have an exam that is usually a, a, a mile wide and an inch deep that dominates the system. And Australia must be one of the few countries left. There's a few around, but not many left that are still using high schools as selection factories. And I think the biggest crisis in Australia at the moment is related to the percentage of kids who start high school and don't finish high school. If you believe, as I do, and in The Economist of Education show that the biggest predictor of adult health, wealth and happiness is not achievement at school, it's the number of years of schooling. And in Australia, one in five kids, one in five who start school don't finish. And don't tell me they go on and do other things. By 25, you can still see one in five did not get much more than about a year 10, or maybe 11 at best. And we're doing so much damage by saying those last two years are so narrowly focused on a narrow concept of excellence. I don't see why a barista can't be excellent. Preparing for a panel meter, you can't be excellent. But under our current model, it's not. So you got me on my hobby horse here. I think it's the last bastion. Don't talk to me about ATARs. Fixing ATARs fixes nothing. The underlying model of ATARs, and that is you're ranking all kids for selection, is where the problem is. What, what's your views, Dan? Uh, look, I would totally agree. I can't wait for New South Wales to get on board and uh, ditch ATARs and uh, just allow HSCs to be done, not have the exam become the focus of so much of our teaching. That's for sure. So uh, if we come back to the idea of 
effective teaching practices in the classroom. Are there any kind of general practices that you've come across that you think are better at preparing kids to being able to teach themselves as lifelong learners? Yeah, look, it's a, a fascinating question. Bob Mazzano came out with a book a few years ago called 485 Teaching Methods. And I thought, oh, wow, he's done a really great job here, so I'll use them. And we have a model of learning. And so my question was, how does it relate to the model of learning? And our model of learning works primarily at two levels, or three levels, actually. The surface level, which is the content, the knowledge, the facts, the vocabulary. The deep level, which is relationships between the ideas and all that kind of deep learning we value. And transfer, how you transfer it to close problems and far problems. And when you look at those 485 teaching methods and say, which ones deliberately get the balance right? We found one out of 485. And so my first struggle is that if you ask me what's the best teaching method, my next question is for deep learning, for surface learning, or for transfer. Now, I make a very strong claim here that I want all three. I don't want deep or surface. I want surface before you go to deep, before you go to transfer. And the jigsaw method is the only one. You know the jigsaw method? No, please expand on the jigsaw method for me. Okay. It's a particular method. It's actually invented in arts education many decades ago, where it's, it's kind of four stages. You put the kids in groups, say, of five kids. You label each kid A, B, C, D, E. You give each kid in a group a particular task to do, like reading a section of a longer section, and B has another section and so on. Then you get all the A's together, all the B's together and so on, and they say, what do I understand and what didn't I understand? So every kid at this stage is learning a small part of the vocabulary and of the knowledge. Then third part, first parts they read it, second parts that the A's get together, et cetera, and they work out what they know and they don't know. The third part, they get together and they teach each other their A part, their B part, their C part. The fourth phase, they bring them all together. Now, the beauty of that, as you can hear, it means that every kid has a reasonable level of the subject matter, the surface level knowledge, and at the end, the group is working on a deeper task. Now, isn't it ironic that if you look at virtually every other method, they privilege either the surface or the deep, and as a researcher, it's very hard to find if there's a right time. I'm not suggesting there's a particular time, but at times we do need to get kids to stop learning more and start going deeper. And so when you ask that question for surface learning, I think there are some stunningly good methods for deep learning. But the trouble is people are usually religious about one or the other. They take problem-based learning. People are usually religious about it. They implement it. And we've done, what, 14 meta-analyses on problem-based learning. We don't have to do another study to say it's one of our most abject failures. Now, the reason for that is because it's so focused on the project base and it's not as much focused on the surface level. And so if kids don't have sufficient surface, when they get to the problem, they're hopeless. I went back through all the studies and recoded them as to whether the problem base was about surface and the effect size is zero to negative. On the deep, it's plus 0.5. The trouble is, and the reason why it's generically overall so bad, is the people who implement it Implement it from the very beginning. They go straight to the problem. They don't attend to the surface. And so problem-based learning can work if you attend that every kid has the surface-level knowledge. Um, unfortunately, that often doesn't happen. So, Dan, beware of educators with solutions. Beware of educators who come with a particular method because usually they favour either the surface or the deep and they never get the balance right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think part of what you're saying there, I know last time I spoke to you, we, talked, we had a bit of a chat about flipped learning in there as well. and I think the same thing that applies to flip learning, I, I think also applies to the project-based learning in terms of it actually matters more about what the teacher does 
because I find project-based learning like flipped learning frees the teacher up a bit. But if you are not covering the surface before you go deep, which is the same in flipped, if you spend the whole time just watching videos and not doing the deep learning in your classroom, then the effect size is going to be, you know, it'll be nothing. They may as well just watch the video. And I think it's a similar thing. It's, it's about what the actual practitioner does with that approach. In any one classroom with project-based learning, the teacher's not having the same approach in terms of, because you were saying, like at the end of what you were saying there, you said that there are teachers who can do it, who can do the surface and use the projects and go deep. Uh, and they would, they would say that that's project-based learning. And some would say that that's the right approach. And others might say they, what they're doing is project-based learning and it's, they're not uniform in their approach. Well, it's interesting to uh, talk about flipped learning because since we did talk, Manuel Kapoor and I are doing a meta-analysis of flipped learning because of exactly the thing you've said. And yeah, we're not finished yet, but it's pretty clear that a lot of the people who implement flip learning are very good on the flip side, what you do before you come to the lesson. But when we actually code what happens in the lesson afterwards, oh my gosh, it's pretty damn similar to what it would have been before. They go over the examples, they do the same old lectures, they do the same old things. And as your point, they miss the opportunity to use the preparation work. And so, and a lot of the flip learning also never checks whether the kids have understood what they were supposed to have read or watched or whatever before they come. And so we're, we're working at the moment, Dan, to say, you know, this, this would be a great topic for any listener who wants to do a master's or a PhD. Simply put them together. Like take direct instruction, very powerful for surface level learning. And yeah, it is actually very good for deep learning, but very hard. Take reciprocal teaching, very good for deep learning. Put them together. Who wouldn't want the acronym direct instruction, reciprocal teaching, DIRT. And I think there's a lot of those kinds of programs that we can successfully put together, but we don't. We're so big at advocating, this is how I teach, this is my method. Whereas we've got to realise that the best method depends on the surface of the deep, and then let, let alone coming to the transfer, that's an, a really unsought out area, which is very exciting. Yeah, I must say when I went through, I, I made sure that when I did, before I even started doing flip learning in a lot of depth, I did a lot of courses online and then also went to a couple of conferences. And one of the things that they were very big on saying, you know, John Bergman was one of the key leaders in that. He's very big on saying the flipping bit isn't actually what makes any difference. He says what makes a difference is that you're checking that they've actually learnt what they watched or what they read. And then you're differentiating your classroom based on what those results are from that test that's you know, it could be a simple multiple choice quiz. Just go, did you understand what you watched? Uh, and then differentiate what happens in your classroom so that you have the kids who got it going deep faster. The kids who didn't, you're, you're giving direct instruction to again, but in a different way so that they actually get the content, check that they know it, and then move on. And, and they'll talk about that as a flipped mastery-based approach uh, where you don't even go on to the next topic until you've shown that you know this in enough depth and kids will come up with their own ways of even showing this is how I know that I've understood these outcomes of what we're meant to be achieving at the moment and I think yeah a lot of people don't do that. The problem that I see not only in classrooms but in schools and that is our, our models of implementation to what degree do we focus on dosage and fidelity and quality and those I think what you're getting at and so often we teach because we have a procedure of teaching whereas the excellence and expertise in teaching is knowing how much dosage, with what fidelity, and to what quality you're actually implementing it. And that's the moment-by-moment -moment expertise that makes the difference to teachers. Like choosing the right strategy, oh my gosh, yes, it makes a difference. But that moment-by-moment -moment attention to implementation. And one of the things that we know about teachers is that they are brilliant at adapting 
and making adaptations, but sometimes they adapt the innovation out of a procedure to make it feel more like what they were doing before. And so flipped learning often has never been implemented, just exactly as you've said, but people say they're using it. Same with problem-based learning. If you go to some of the really good writing on problem-based learning, they talk about the importance of the kids knowing the and mastering the content before they go to the problem. But in the implementation, that's obviously jumped over quickly or assumed, and therein lies the mistake. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think practitioners who look at it as more of a fad rather than going deep diving into it themselves, it definitely ends up becoming something that's not as, as effective as it should be, definitely. So, John, often when I finish off my podcast, I try and give the teacher something to do this uh, today or this week uh, in their classroom. Maybe we'll go back to your jigsaw method. Should teachers give that a go this week? I look, I go and look it up on the web. There's plenty of resources to do a jigsaw, work it out. And what I want you to do when you try it, teachers, is try it and then continually ask yourself about its impact and your impact. Ask the students at the end and ask the question you said, Dan, to what degree are they at mastery at the end of a jigsaw? And I think you'll be quite impressed with the fact that even some of your struggling students gain a lot from the method because you're deliberately using the students to teach each other. You're deliberately getting the students to become teachers. Now, all those things require skills of teaching. So after the first time, you might realize, hey, what I have to do here is better teach the kids to become their own teachers. Beautiful. Thank you so much, John. Now, just before you go, I do want to mention the app that you are connected to, at least, the Visible Classroom app. That I remember last time I spoke to you, you mentioned this to me and I actually went and had a, had a good look at it because I think that what you were telling me actually was fantastic in terms of what it did. So can you just very briefly give our listeners a quick explanation of the app and what it will do for them in terms of having a look at their practices at the moment? Well, one of the things uh, we were concerned of a few years ago was the move that we saw coming from America and England of people sitting in the back of classrooms with tick boxes and watching teachers or getting teachers to make videos. And it's very, very hard to find much evidence that makes a difference to anything. And so what we decided to do was to bypass all that. And, and my partner, Janet Clinton, uh, led a team to develop an app called The Visible Classroom. And there's a free version up on the Apple website, more sophisticated versions that do cost. So I put that up front. And the idea is that you, it comes out on your phone, you turn it on, you run your lesson, the end of the lesson, you turn it off and it'll immediately give you a transcript of everything you've said. It will also provide 16 to 20 coded from the Danielson and Mazzano. And so you can actually see, for instance, that on average we know, and we've done it for about 15,000 teachers now, we know that teachers talk about 89% of the time, ask about 200 questions a day, um, 90% are surface level. So you can get a sense of what you look like through the eyes of your students. There are other ways you can use it. You can actually give the students the transcript uh, within two seconds, three seconds of you actually speaking so they can have a second chance to hear what you said. Um, you can get the students to rate their learning. And so you can then match it to what attributes are in terms of what you, you were doing in the talking in the session. And it's a really good way to reflect through the eyes of others. There's a lot of work still being done on it. There's a randomized control study just finishing in England with about 300 schools looking at its impact on learning. Uh, we know a lot about its, its positive effects. So it's an exciting development. We're still in the research mode, but I encourage any of your listeners to go out and have a play and see what it looks like. Thank you very much, John. I definitely would encourage it. And I'll put a link up on my website at teacherspd.net. There'll be a link with this episode to some jigsaw resources and also to this app so that people can give it a go. Thank you again, John, for all of your time. I know you're a very busy man. So thank you so much for giving it up. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to talk. 
You've been listening to Effective Teaching with Dan Jackson. Please visit TeachersPD.net for more effective teaching strategies and online professional development.